You're listening to The Captain's Table, where this week Michael and I will be talking to sci-fi writer and longtime friend of the show, John Jackson Miller. Welcome to the Captain's Table, where we have intimate chats with those who have shaped Star Trek in words. My name's Michael, and with me as always is my wonderful friend and co-host, Roz. Hi, Roz. Hi, Michael. Good to be back for another show, and good to have another author on to talk to us about their work. Oh, it's brilliant. We, we've been really lucky that since our relaunch, um, a lot of the wonderful authors have been willing to come on and, and talk Trek and talk about their work, and, and more importantly, it's a great catch-up. Yes, definitely. It's been so long since we last spoke to some of these people. So it's good to just uh, see where everybody's at now. So, Roz, who's with us today? Today, we are very happy to welcome back friend of the Capstan's Table, John Jackson Miller. John, lovely to have you with us. Hey, how to be here. Oh, it's great. We, we can't believe it's been, I think it's about three years since we last spoke. Um, yeah, it, I guess we must not have done one of these for uh, for the previous book, the uh, Enterprise War. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, it, yeah, I'm always glad to be on the show. Yeah, I think there's been a there's been a few different things that have come out since the last time we spoke, and um, today we're going to be focusing on die standing. But we would right. very much like to have you on again at some point to do a bit of a roundup show because right. we I don't think we've talked about um, as you said Enterprise War, which we both love, um, or the Prey trilogy, which is oh, yeah. one of our favourites. <laughs> um, so there's definitely some questions that we could ask you about that um, if we can tempt you back onto the captain's table another day. <laughs> Uh, no worries. Great. Well, that's, that's brilliant. So, John, jumping straight in then, how would you describe Die Standing for our listeners? Uh, die Standing is uh, intended to be the uh, sort of missing chapter in Emperor Georgiou's life, the character who Michelle Yeoh plays. Uh, she plays double roles in Discovery. Uh, she's Captain Georgiou, the mentor of uh, Michael Burnham. Uh, but then also in the mirror universe, we find out that she's actually the emperor and uh, she manages to abscond. Uh, well, not really abscond. She's, she's kidnapped from that universe into ours or into the prime universe uh, by Michael. And uh, immediately uh, in the, the plot of the, the first season of Discovery, uh, the Federation puts her to work uh, as sort of an agent uh, because they they don't uh, think as dastardly enough as they need to to be able to defeat uh, the Klingon Empire. Uh, 
they, they send her out with an assignment. Uh, everybody involved um, on Discovery immediately realizes that this is the wrong thing to do, that she's not uh, somebody that uh, represents the best values of the Federation or, or Starfleet. And so uh, what happens is uh, they basically, uh, they, they put her, they, they, uh, they sever the deal and they say, uh, you know, go, go your ways. And she ends up deciding uh, to, uh, or when we see her next, she's running a, uh, a bar or a tavern on Kronos uh, and uh, having fun. And uh, she ends up, uh, being uh, encountered, uh, she encounters a trill, or she thinks it's a trill, uh, for about five seconds. It's actually Leland, the uh, the head of Section uh, Thirty One in uh, in uh, this part of the timeline, uh, who offers her a job uh, again uh, as an agent. Uh, this is the thing they had just had her doing, more or less, uh, which didn't work out. Uh, and I was offered the chance to uh, fill in the gap between that moment. And then when we see her as an agent, uh, again, working on the Klingon homeworld in the second season of Discovery, uh, and it struck me that uh, all of the reasons that she shouldn't have been working for the Federation uh, in the Klingon War still obtained. She still had no business uh, being anybody's uh, agent because she was not going to work for anybody but herself. Uh, you know, she is, uh, you know, she... Uh, is is somebody who comes from the Terran Empire and has all of their belief systems and uh, everything, just have no business, uh, uh, you know, being given any responsibility whatsoever. Uh, and so I I decided to run with that and also to address what I felt would be her uh, her own character arc in this, uh, that she would be going through a period of uh, much. Uh, you know, it, it would be traumatic for her because she would be going from uh, having had control over all she surveyed to having nothing. Uh, from being in a realm where, uh, you know, the ways that she knows how to act uh, are rewarded to a realm where the ways she knows how to act are uh, you know, rebuked. Uh, and so uh, she was going to have an adjustment she was going to have uh, certainly uh, a, a period where she was uh, going to be angry about her loss, where she was going to be trying to get her old empire back, uh, trying to see if you know she could uh, you know, do this. And and so what I did is, uh, and uh, this is actually not the not the first book that I've structured along the uh, the lines of the Kubler Ross stages of grief, uh, but. That is what I did. I came up with a uh, mirror universe version of the stages of, of grief. Uh, and I used that as a structure uh, for her going through uh, these stages. Uh, although, uh, of course, uh, you know, our stages over here are, are uh, you know, defiance and murder and, and uh, you know, much, much more nasty sounding, uh, ending with destruction. Uh, but, you know, I, as, as it turns out, I've done a couple of books like this. Uh, yeah, in Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, uh, I realized that the first six issues uh, of that series uh, did actually break down along those five stages uh, as the main character had to deal with the fact that he wasn't a Jedi anymore. 
Uh, and you, although I don't actually have that structure in uh, my Star Wars Kenobi novel, uh, that is also what Obi-Wan Kenobi is going through because he has gone from uh, being part of everything at the center of the galaxy to uh, having no control over anything and living on the periphery. Uh, and, you know, what, what intrigued me about this book is I knew that Emperor Georgiou was going to react completely differently. Um, this book is much, much different from other Star Trek novels in the sheer amount of insult that is allowed in it, uh, the sheer amount of, uh, of innuendo that is allowed in it, uh, because, again, it's what they've established for that character in the TV show. Um, you know, I was told in the beginning when I was writing Star Trek that I couldn't have officers insulting one another or, or you know, overly critical of one another because that's not how we do things in Star Trek. Um, well, first of all, it is more how we do things in the Discovery era because we're not quite so uh, sophisticated yet. Uh, but also, uh, it is absolutely how they do things in the Terran universe. So how, um, how difficult was it finding the balance between writing for Emperor Giorgio's uh, kind of nastier proclivities, but also ma still making her a kind of character that you can get behind? Because actually, yeah. although she is definitely out for herself and everything, well, as I was reading it, I found myself being kind of rooting for her almost yeah. because she, she's got the element of likability. So how did you find kind of striking that balance? Well, this is the sort of thing that, uh, you know, it's, for a very long time in fiction, there have been people willing to root for the bad guy uh, or somebody who would be the bad guy in the story if that person is clever enough uh, or, or, or if, we're a, if we're convinced that the people that uh, that person is dealing with are worse. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, obvious television uh, examples uh, you know, you know, the Sopranos, Tony Soprano has no redeeming characteristics other than that he is marginally less stupid and marginally less uh, you know, you know, horrible than some of the people he has to deal with. Uh, Breaking Bad, I mean, that's many, many seasons uh, and, and Better Call Saul to follow it. Uh, you know, Breaking Bad, of course, you know, our main character is a villain uh, The uh, in uh, it, it better call Saul, uh, our person is a con artist, a cad, he's terrible. Uh, but uh, we follow these characters because uh, they're smart, it's interesting to see how they get out of jams. Uh, nobody likes a dumb villain, um, uh, at least more than once. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I had already done a, a book which was all... Uh, it, Kind of by my training for the mirror universe, I did a, I did a Star Wars book called uh, Lost Tribe of the Sith, which was about a group of Sith that crash landed on a planet with no technology, and they had to survive for centuries without killing each other. Uh, and so every uh, few stories I would leap ahead uh, in time and be dealing with a different protagonist who was evil, uh, was Sith, but was you know, trying to make their way in their own way. And yeah, we end up identifying with them because we realize that whoever they're coping with at the time is worse. Uh, in, in this case, uh, you know, it's, it's not so much that they're worse, it's just that you can see her point. Um, she is able to root out almost right away 
the hypocrisy in the existence of Section 31, the hypocrisy in, uh, in the Federation uh, wanting her to do their dirty work uh, and not get their hands dirty. Uh, she's able to root all that out and she has no respect for it. Uh, she has no respect for Leland uh, because even though, yes, he is at least, you know, uh, less a babe in the woods than, than, you know, everybody else in the Federation, she dis uh, disrespects him because she says he won't go for the chance. He won't go for it. You know, if you really had all these ch uh, chances to get power, why haven't you used them by now? Uh, protect the Federation. That's not really what you're about. You're about gathering power for yourself. Uh, and she sees through him. Uh, you know, she roots out the uh, the notion of the control computer program almost immediately. She has zero respect for that. Uh, and she just sees things. Um, you know, I, I, you know, she sees right away that, uh, you know, this, this plan that, uh, you know, uh, the Federation has come up with, uh, or actually not that the Federation has come up with, but, but that Michael comes up with, uh, along with Laurel, uh, to uh, put a stop to the Klingon war. Uh, she, she can see pretty much from what she knows of Klingons that that bargain won't last. Uh, you know, the Klingons will not be peaceable forever just because there's a gun pointed to their heads. That's not what Klingons do. Uh, and so, you know, she's able to actually, you know, make some observations uh, that we don't disagree with. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the end, uh, what ends up happening is the scales have to be balanced uh, in such a way that she is satisfied that it is better for her to work within the system than work without. Uh, and uh, and that is, uh, that is, that's really the thrust of the story and the, the, and the, the idea behind putting these other characters with her on this journey. Uh, and, uh, and it is, uh, it is in doubt, I should hope, uh, through almost to the end of the book, uh, you know, what decision she'll make. Um, it definitely is. Um, during the, during the beginning of the story, um, you, you tell us about how Leyland approached, um, Jean Show in the Klingon bar. Um, and asked her to join Section 31. Um, was that based very much on the deleted scene that we no, never saw in Discovery? It's uh, based entirely on the deleted scene yeah. <laughs> in Discovery, uh, because that was what we had. Uh, and when I spoke with Kirsten Beyer, who uh, writes the other Star Trek novels uh, for, uh, for Voyager, but also is in the writer's room of Discovery and Picard and, and other shows, uh, you know, that's, that's what I, uh, I took as, as kind of the starting point. Uh, and I had said, uh, you know, let's have her have a, a, a you know, sort of a, a testing mission where they they put her in a situation, but they don't tell her that it's uh, that it's a uh, a test. Uh, and of course, she sees through that immediately and leaves wreckage all over the place. Um, and uh, one of the delights in this is I got to show a location uh, called Thyanoga, the Thyanoga Detention Center. Uh, that I had already established in the Prey trilogy that I wrote several years earlier, uh, we never actually got to see events on it except in flashback. But I always wanted to tell a story there about this place, and uh, and uh, and boy, she uh, she makes a mess of it. <laughs> yeah. 
So you you mentioned there about um, the the sort of mix of characters in this book, and obviously one of the people that we meet is Emily Dax. Did you from the beginning of the story did you always know that you wanted a Dax in, and also did you have to do a bit of kind of working backwards yeah. to work out who the which yeah. host would fit the time period? Uh, I I actually always wanted a trill in. Uh, in the very first draft, uh, it was going to be a situation where. Um, the, the notion of the three hermits, the, the Troika, the, the three kingdoms, that was always in there. The notion that Section 31 would send her with uh, a babysitter or a guide or assistance uh, to this area was always in there. Uh, in the very beginning, though, uh, the characters of um, Quintilian and uh, and, uh, and, uh, and whoever this guide would be were sort of merged. Uh, and it, it, and so the very first draft, my notion had been uh, that this person would be a trill, but uh, there there you know there would be a submerged personality as trills have uh, that is actually our villain. So our villain is going along with us the entire book. Uh, and uh, I, we we ended up determining that was that was that was a bit too complicated, uh, and we decided that we wanted to do something a bit more fun uh, by giving her. Um, you know, some companions, uh, the specific characters that it be a Dax and, and then our other, our other character from Captain Kirk's past, uh, those two characters were suggested by, uh, uh, by uh, Kirsten and Dayton Ward and Margaret Clark, uh, who are sort of the triumvirate of ideas uh, that come out of the, the TV land. Uh, and I, I struggled at first to, to, to make Finnegan work, and then I figured out how, and, and that was fine. Uh, Dax was one where it, it was kind of determined already that she had met Captain McCoy, or not Captain McCoy, Dr. McCoy. He might have been a captain when he retired, who knows. Uh, she, she, met, she met Dr. McCoy. Uh, that had been established in Deep Space Nine. Uh, and so uh, that she had been in a, uh, she had been judging a competition uh, at Ole Miss and that she had encountered a young, uh, young McCoy and that this Dax was Emony Dax, the, um, the, uh, the gymnast, the Olympic gymnast. And so what I did was I looked back at what had been written about her in the past and all there was was a story in the lives of Dax uh, which was a, a, pen, a, a compendium, a, an anthology. Uh, in that story, which we were not bound to, the, to, uh, to using uh, as part of our history, uh, they actually had her as much older uh, when she encountered McCoy uh, judging this event. Uh, I reasoned that she could be much younger because uh, her uh, gymnastic career could be over quite early. Um, she, could, she could still be in her late 20s uh, and everything would still work. And that's what I wanted because I wanted her to be uh, a fish out of water alongside Giorgio, who was also a fish out of water. I wanted, I wanted her to be unsure. I wanted her to be the sort of person that uh, Giorgio would have accepted as a companion because she knows she, she poses no threat, because she knows she can get away from her at any time she wants. Uh, and that is, in fact, an undercurrent of the book that at any time, uh, Giorgio may run off. And indeed, she does. Um, you mentioned the Troika. Um, where did you come up with the idea of free species? 
and and how fun was that to create those? Uh, yeah, I uh, I had just done in um, in Enterprise War uh, a, a battle between two factions, uh, one which was incredibly alien, and we had a very hard time understanding what they wanted, and then another one which was a very traditional colonial marine starship trooper sort of uh, sort of army. Uh, and uh, I didn't have anything sort of in between. And what I wanted to do was do something that had uh, three quite alien species uh, that that were um, you know, significantly different enough that the Federation would not have wanted to interact with them uh, or that they wouldn't have wanted to interact with the Federation, uh, but that they would have, um, you know, allowed uh, a, a human trader to uh, basically run uh, your commerce between uh, between these places, uh, which gives us our character Quintilian, and uh, you know there's a lot of Roman uh, Empire uh, imagery in this, as you would expect in something having to do with uh, the uh, the mirror universe. Uh, but uh, but I mean he he comes up with the name of his people, the Venati. Uh, they're the they are they are they were the the uh, the shipfaring people. Uh, that uh, conducted all trade uh, between the continent uh, and England uh, before Caesar. And uh, Caesar uh, conquers the Veneti, and that's that. Uh, well, in this case, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, we have him serving that role. And I, I wanted to sort of bring in this notion of this, this commercial uh, enterprise here that I could, uh, that I could uh, uh, deal with as, as a thing which has existed for a very long time uh, and which has stood off from the Federation and off from the Klingons for good reason. Uh, and I wanted to put a mystery in here. I wanted to put um, something here that the uh, that Section 31 would have no choice but to send Giorgio after because what's the advantage of having her? It can't just be that she's a nasty person and has, or has, uh, has dastardly ideas. It has to be that in her universe, she's been there. In her universe, she's gone to this closed kingdom. She's seen these places. She knows things. Uh, that's why you give her the job. Uh, and so that's what she does. And uh, of course, uh, what she's interested in doing is uh, finding uh, this particular weapon for her own ends. Uh, because as she does not reveal, she had a shot at it in her own universe as well. And that's what we set up right at the beginning. Yeah, you you mentioned the the troika being sort of set apart from the the federation because they're so different. Each of the troika species, none of them are, are humanoid, and the way that you describe them, because we don't often get many non-humanoid species in Star Trek because of the limitations of being able to make actors look like them, which is fair enough. But in the books, obviously, you can go so much further and the descriptions for each of these um, these species, they were sort of one more fantastic than the other. How much fun was it to come up with that? Well, and did you have quite a clear image of what you wanted each of them to be like? Well, yes. If, if this were a video podcast as well as an audio podcast, uh, I could actually go over and get the, the whiteboard, which is uh, against my wall, where I drew a, a I drew a, a, a picture of each of the three uh, of the uh, of the Kasmarans and the Dromax and uh, the Oslings 
uh, I drew uh, I drew a big one of each of them so I would remember what they look like. Uh, I am no artist. I you know people ask me do I draw my own comics uh, for any of the comics that I do? No, I have been asked not to draw. Uh, but uh, you know it's but it, it it is really helpful to me to know that you know the the Kasmarans are these uh, sort of uh, walking hydra. Uh, that have uh, you know uh, uh, five layers of six stalks going out, uh, no visible eyes, no visible anything else. Uh, you know the Dromax are these uh, you know, sort of little, little shambling trolls uh, with no legs uh, and that that wander around like slugs. And uh, and then the Oslings uh, have these tremendous heads that are filled with gas that is luminescent, uh, and uh, that's what passes for faces for them. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, and, and it, it, it was something where uh, developing them as the story went along, and as I, as, as I added to their life cycles and things like that, um, you know, that uh, ideas just came along. Uh, the whole thing about, um, well, there's a, uh, there's a, a particular artifact, or actually it's a, it's a location uh, that's in Dromax territory. Uh, the, the, that turns out to be central to how their people reproduce. Uh, that came about later on. Uh, as I was writing, I said, well, where do all these people come from? Uh, and, I, and I realized, oh gosh, uh, there's, you're right in here. There's all sorts of ways to build that in. Uh, and, and so there's that. Uh, and then of course the Oslings uh, were able to, I was able to work them in uh, to, uh, to giving them a part in the origin story uh, of this weapon that Georgie was going for, and that, as it turns out, we've seen in the TV show. Now, we spoke to Dayton recently um, about his, uh, his story, Agents of Influence, and how he took one snippet from an episode and used that as the basis for, um, for his story. Now, in some ways, you, you've done the same here because, and again, we, we, we will put a spoiler alert at the beginning of the show. Um, <laughs> you've taken the cloud creature from Obsession and you've used that as a focal point for the story. What made you connect, well, not what made you, how did you connect the two? Where, where did the idea come from? Well, I've done a lot of this. Uh, in fact, I've done nothing but this. Uh, the very first thing I wrote for Titan was uh, a, a short story called Absent Enemies, which spun off of the, uh, the, uh, the uh, episode, The Next Phase for the Next Generation. Uh, my, my, uh, my novel, Takedown, uh, spun off of the episode, The Nth Degree. Uh, Prey alternately spins off of Sins of the Father uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the Kalos, uh, Emperor Kalos episode, uh, and then also uh, Devil's Due, another episode. Uh, and, and uh, well, actually, I think, now that I think about it, Enterprise War may not actually spin off of anything. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but this one, yeah, I mean, I, I cannot remember whether that, that particular threat was suggested uh, by, by them or us. Uh, or them or me, uh, I think maybe it came about by the fact that in our discussions, we realized that uh, Kirk would have been on Farragut at this point. Uh, and also, once I dug into the, uh, to the, to the calendar, once I dug into the timeline, uh, Kirk had to have his uh, encounter with the cloud creature then. Uh, and uh, yeah, I know, I think early on, 
I, I was dealing with it and saying, well, how do I make the cloud creature interesting? Because the creature has no voice. Uh, the creature has nobody to speak for it. Um, and so I, I went about uh, uh, you know, showing its impact on everybody that had gotten, gotten near or gotten around it. Uh, and again, by the time we get to the end of the book, uh, we've got an origin for the, uh, for the cloud. Uh, and uh, and it, all, it all meshes together. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, hopefully it's something that elaborates on uh, what we saw in the show. Um, you know, one of the complicated things is I had to go back into uh, fiction to see where else it was mentioned. And uh, so it, it uh, I, even though I am not bound to the previous stories, there are nods to uh, previous uh, stories that have brought the cloud in, uh, ranging from uh, *Dead of Honor*, the Chris Claremont graphic novel, uh, the uh, the the doctor in that graphic novel uh, is the same doctor that we put on Farragut. Uh, the uh, there there's a uh, you know when when uh, when William Shatner wrote uh, a book uh, that showed what happened to the cloud creature. I wasn't able to reconcile all of that because in his story, the cloud creature attack happened on the ground, on the surface of Tycho uh, 6 or whatever the planet was. Uh, but I was able to use some of the names of the companions that had been killed. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot of nods in here. Uh, again, I'm never required to do this, uh, but uh, you know, because it's, you know, the television shows are the master document, uh, but uh, I thought it was fun. Oh, it was. Um, and then another snippet was Finnegan. You, you mentioned that um, he wasn't so difficult to bring into the story. But again, what, why, why this? And, and is it because Kirk was on the Farragut at the time? Well, I, 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 I think I said he was difficult to bring in because I was trying to figure out how I make his, this person into a real character. Uh, because Finnegan, as we saw him in the TV show, was a fantasy. He was a nightmare. Uh, he was uh, uh, every... Every uh, bad, uh, uh, every bad Irish stereotype they could uh, they could come up with, except for putting a bottle in his hand, uh, you know, which which again I'm Irish enough that I can I can I can go here. Uh, I I can the the, the yeah, he's 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 just short of being a leprechaun. Uh, he's he's out there out there hammering on on uh, on uh, on him and uh, on Kirk, and we realized well he had to be a real person. I went back into the fiction and found out that the only reference to him ever had been in a comic book where Peter David uh, had established that in the movie era, uh, he worked for the Federation Security Agency. <laughs> and the light went on and I said, well, if you're going to put somebody with Giorgio to be her companion that she's not going to fear, um, you know, this is the guy. Uh, and uh, at the same time, it dawned on me that I could do something where I could give them a an arc that has already started before he comes on the scene uh, by making him uh, somebody she knew in her universe. And not only somebody she knew in her universe, but somebody she thought was formidable and trainable. Uh, this character, Blackjack, who is, uh, who is uh, this, this, uh, this ruthless assassin. Um, you know, this is why she's willing to spend as much time as she does with them in the beginning portion of the book uh, and uh, again, you know, it, it, there's this sort of transition moment where she realizes, okay, he's not who he was there. He's not somebody I can train. 
but at least he's harmless. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, maybe I can use him for something. Uh, and that's, uh, that's, uh, that's sort of the way that goes. Um, writing him was a joy uh, because uh, he is the spirit, the very spirit of uh, uh, resilience. Um, you knock him down, he gets back up. Uh, I, 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 I have to say I came very close to quoting the exact line from the Chumbawamba song, I get knocked down, I get right back up again. Well, I have him, I have him say that paraphrased at the end, because by the 23rd century, it's become a barroom song that nobody remembers the words to. Uh, but that's, that is who he is. Uh, in his life, in his career, he has been bashed about and he keeps going back in. And, you know, when we find him, he's in jail. Uh, for the latest thing he did that you know showed poor judgment, uh, and he doesn't want to leave. He's like, you know, I was supposed to be here, but I'll get out and I'll do something else fun. Uh, and and so he actually has a, this sort of larger role in the same way that Emily Dax does. Uh, the two of them show Giorgio what it is to start over, what it is to lose and begin again, begin again, Finnegan, as the movie title goes. Uh, the, uh, he's always having to, uh, dust himself off and go again. Uh, yeah, the, the, you know, and who are the trills except, uh, the embodiment of starting over? Um, you know, they, they, and they love it. That's what they want. Uh, they, they like being reincarnated and, uh, and they have some control over it, which is not bad. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, those are good companions to have with her. Um, I was, I had the option early on of having her traveling, you know, with a Section 31 ship that would be constantly with her and a bunch of other characters. And I said, no, that, that will muddle this. Uh, let's just have a really tight, you know, the Troika, we're going to send three people to the Troika uh, and we're going to see them interact we're going to see their relationships and interactions, and we're going to understand them better by how they act towards one another. Uh, you know, we even see uh, a lot about Emony and how she treats Finnegan. We see a lot about Finnegan and how he treats Emony, uh, and they're concerned about how they treat each other. Uh, and not to the extent that she, is, uh, that Giorgio is, but uh, you know, it, it's. Uh, so, so we have all this, and then, of course, you know, in, in spoiler land here, uh, I have Captain Georgiou always in this story. We, we realize, after the fact, that we are following in the footsteps of Captain Georgiou as she went into Troika space to achieve a different end, uh, and uh, the, the entire bit, which I think is really the heart of the book, uh, where uh, the two halves of Giorgio encounter one another, that was a very late addition. It was something where I got to that point in the book and I said, this is what the readers deserve. Uh, this is what this character needs. Uh, this will resolve this entire part of the arc. Uh, I hate, hate, hate plotting books. Uh, I, 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 I can say what order things are going to happen in, but I cannot say what people are going to be feeling by that point. Uh, until I'm actually getting there, writing it, and I realize this is what the readers have earned. Oh, 
Well, it worked perfectly. That that was an amazing, shall we say, scene or segment of the book. It re it really did work. And um, again, um, Ros and I normally listen to this on Audible um, because our listening, our reading habits have changed. And uh, January Lavoy got that that segment perfect in in, in the inflictions and and the oh, voices yeah. of both characters. Yeah, I, I haven't gotten to the end yet, uh, I, but I, it, uh, I've heard her introduce all of the characters and uh, she's just wonderful. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I am, uh, I, I'm always amazed at, you know, the extent to which these narrators can you know, handle so many different voices. Uh, and, you know, the, uh, I, I, I'm hopeful that this book was less of a challenge uh, than some of my previous ones. Uh, certainly the Prey trilogy, I think I counted over 150 voices uh, <laughs> over the course of over the course of 27 hours or whatever it was, or 36 hours, whatever it was. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, you know, with, with five different f uh, female Klingon voices, uh, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is, this is something where uh, I'd never be able to do it and I really admire it. Yeah, I think we both agreed that she absolutely nails the Giorgio voice. Where she just, it just sounds like Michelle Yeoh. And I really, actually, I really enjoyed her Finnegan because she's got, she captures that um, upbeat, lilting Irish brogue um, yeah, that is just exactly yeah. how you want him to sound. That's, ex that's exactly right. I, I mean, again, the, the character is... Uh, well, let's face it, uh, he was the first Star Trek the Animated Series character because he was a cartoon character inserted into the original TV yeah. series. Uh, he's, he's, he's not meant to be serious. He's not meant to be a full human in that. He's meant to be uh, an imp. And, uh, and that he is, uh, she calls him a, 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 you know, a chaos demon or something like that at some point in this. Uh, and and we can believe that in the mirror universe with the with the appropriate training he could be a, a, you know, a deranged killer uh, and somebody to really 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 be afraid of so uh, again you know I I often am faced with pieces of a puzzle that I'm wondering how they fit together or if they fit together and then I realize, uh, you know, after, you know, much stress, uh, you know, what the best way for these characters to interact is, and, uh, and then we're off. So there's a, a lot of different threads to the story and, and there's lots of different references. You mentioned there the, uh, that you kind of paraphrased the Chumbawamba song, Tub Thumb Thing. We spotted a Lord of the Rings reference with You Shall Not yeah. Pass. Also yep. the Mission Impossible, should you choose to accept it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you kind of purposefully set out to put little Easter eggs in there or oh, does yeah. it just kind of come? As you... Well, well yeah, not, 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 uh, Chumbawamba was late in the process, uh, but uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, but you know, Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible was shot. Uh, it, it was owned by uh, was owned by Desi Liu and was shot in the same studios. Uh, so I mean that that was that was obvious uh, that that was going to go there. Um, uh, you know the the you know, sort of the, the other references. Uh, you know I I'm always looking for uh, places to uh, certainly to use real life references. I mean one of the things that. You know, you never uh, get to do when you're doing Star Wars, is have any references from real life uh, from our planet. Um, and you know, I probably spend more time, uh, except for the plot, 
I spend more time on every, in every book on those quotations which go in the front of the chapters <laughs> and then the titles of the chapters. Usually there's some wordplay with the chapter titles uh, and, and you know, there's some greater significance to what's being discussed. And uh, you know, in, in this one, for example, all the quotes uh, are, are from uh, characters that appeared in Mirror Universe episodes, but not in our novel. Uh, so, uh, and so many of those Mirror Universe episodes were actually from far in the future. Uh, but since, since the conceit of those, uh, those, those quotations uh, is that they're coming from historians or people speaking historically in the Mirror Universe, it's possible for me to have um, uh, Kal Mini's character uh, you know, referring to the fact that he's, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that uh, you, know, uh, you know, he's called Smiley in, in, uh, in DS9 uh, in, in, uh, in the Beery universe, and, uh, and that, uh, that uh, Finnegan is also Irish, and he's like, I want to disown this person officially. Uh, this, this is not somebody I want to take responsibility for. But then much later on, we have a, we have a line from, from Esri Dax, uh, who's not a Dax, uh, in the mirror universe, but we have a line from her in uh, in uh, DS9's era of the book, uh, and uh, so you know, I, I and of course we have Spock, um, yeah. all to all to underscore the fact that uh, you know uh, Emperor Georgiou vanished. Uh, she's yeah. not there anymore. Uh, you know, she had uh, you know she had some influence on the future, uh, but uh, not as much as she could have had. And um, we liked how you showed the subtle changes in the Mirror Universe, whether it be the names of starships, like uh, there was a starship called Mussolini, or um, even with quotes like Mary Antoinette, instead of saying, let them eat cake, it was let them eat field rations. Those little changes <laughs> must have been fun to write. <laughs> well, that's what everybody loves about that universe. And, you know, the, the, the opening uh, question always in writing the Mirror Universe is when do we think the, the split happened? When do we think it's split off from our universe? Um, you know, while as a fan for years, I and a lot of other people thought it happened with the city on the edge of forever and Edith Keeler and, you know, World War II being uh, lost. Uh, you know, the, the uh, Enterprise TV series made it plain that uh, it has always been thus. It has always been this way. Uh, you know, we see in the opening credits, uh, you know, the, the armies marching in the history yeah. and, they have references to Shakespeare and various others. And so, uh, so yeah, that's, that's where another one of our quotations comes from is, is Shakespeare as well uh, in, in the other universe. And you know, some things are the same, but of course a lot of things are different. And uh, I do have fun with those things. I try not to go overboard. Um, I think the, you know, the closest I get to, uh, to parody uh, is, uh, well, there's a reference to Whipsaw, and that is the uh, that is the code name for uh, for uh, the cloud because we don't want to talk about the cloud until we get to it. And I refer to it as a a tool that was used in ancient Canada before the Canadian warlords began using it as a weapon <laughs> of uh, of torture. Uh, and of course, it would be Canadian warlords. Of course, they would yeah. use this torture. Uh, but you know, one of one of the one of the other you know one of the other you know, fun little running gags in the book is everybody wants to know what their doppelganger was like. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> wants to know that, and you know, so Leland she has been torturing for the entire book with these horrific, horrific uh, destinies, 
And of course, if she told him what his real destiny was in our universe, uh, he would find that one even worse, probably. So, um, so the, yeah, it's uh, so it's interesting. Um, you know, writing the book, uh, Leland in particular, we already knew he was dead. We already knew what happens to him. Um, so, you know, I had some uh, latitude to, um, you know, establish their relationship any way that I wanted to because we had already seen it all, um, at least so far as we know. So continuing with the, the Mirror Universe, you mentioned in the acknowledgements for this book that you felt that the Mirror Universe arc in season one of Discovery was one of the finest Star Trek stories in years. What was it about that, this iteration of the Mirror Universe that really spoke to you? Well, a couple of things. One is that, okay, previous Trek series, um, with the exception of, of Deep Space Nine, uh, were rooted in the original episodic nature of television where you had no idea whether or not TV episodes were gonna be shown in order when they appeared in syndication. And so you didn't have a lot of really, really tight, uh, you know, serialized continued next week plotting. You couldn't, you couldn't do a, 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 a story arc uh, for a whole season. Uh, even in Next Gen, uh, the Klingon uh, arc having to do with uh, Worf and being discommodated uh, you know, pops up and then vanishes and then pops up and then vanishes. Uh, and, and it really isn't until the latter seasons of uh, Deep Space Nine where, you know, you really are sort of uh, hamstrung by not knowing what's going on if you, if you miss things. Well, Discovery and the whole notion of how streaming video works now, where everything is in order by default, everything is shown in order naturally, nobody just dips in to see episode eight. Uh, you know, it, it, everybody goes in order, has allowed them to tell the kinds of stories that, um, you know, previously were available uh, only to soap operas and comic books uh, and other kinds of serialized fiction where you could do something like hide a traitor in the cast for a very long time. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, that's what I did in my Knights of the Old Republic series. I hid a traitor in the cast for three years, uh, more than three years, and all the clues were there, and I lucked out and was able to actually finish the series uh, and pay off all of the all of the things that I did. Um, you, you, you know, even even in a TV show, you might not know that you would get the second half of the first season. You might not know that the, these things would pay off. Uh, here, here, uh, here, they they had that, and so they were able to, uh, you know, with uh, with Lorca's character and that turnabout. I thought that was very daring. I, I liked that a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just liked the notion of spending significant time in that universe where we're seeing it from their perspective um, more than just from ours. Uh, it takes, uh, you know, we kind of get that, well, we, we, we do get that in the Enterprise two-parter, uh, but there's so much there that's set up. Because they're dealing with defiant, and they're dealing with uh, with uh, you know they're dealing with uh, you know, what's what's happening, what's going on, that we don't get to see what it's like to live in that universe very well. Um, you know, we get to see it in Deep Space Nine after the Empire has fallen, uh, but uh, but yeah, I liked seeing this. I thought that was I thought it was I, I thought it was uh, an interesting place to go for half of the season or half of the second half of the season, and uh, I. Uh, I I like that they kind of went all in on it, 
And when uh, Giorgio hopped uh, from one universe to the other, I said, yeah. I said, wow. <laughs> I said, that makes a book possible. That makes a lot possible. And I, I was fortunate enough to get to write the book. I love it. Brilliant. Yeah, well, it's certainly, you, you kind of took that premise of having a, our mirror universe character, fish out of water, dealing in unfamiliar surroundings with unfamiliar values and, and just ran with it in this story. And I think the way that it plays out was really interesting and, and a lovely way to link Giorgio from season one into Giorgio from season two. So, you. Yeah. you know, I, I tried very hard to, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to do a fish out of water story where she she's running into things she doesn't expect all the time and where she's the one that's on her back foot. Uh, no, uh, she's, first of all, she knows a lot about our universe because of the Defiant. And the second thing is all the differences she finds, she immediately disdains. She, she immediately <laughs> assumes, oh, well, you guys, you just, you care about things that nobody should. Uh, or, or if anybody in my world bothered to worry about the things you worry about. Uh, and, and that gave it a different flavor, I think. Uh, you know, certainly Star Trek is no, uh, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no lack of fish out of water stories uh, that have been done for Star Trek. Uh, but this one in particular, uh, you know, I, I, I think that it's, a, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a, a different kind of book it's got a lot more jokes <laughs> and uh, it's uh, and hopefully it is a fun summer read in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what's next for you, John, what are you working on at the moment? What's, what can our listeners look out for in the future? Uh, I have a, uh, a, another uh, star Wars thing coming up. Uh, the uh, star Wars uh, did uh, in 2017, uh, we did a book called Star Wars from a Certain Point of View, and uh, it was an anthology of uh, 40 stories by uh, different authors, including a lot of people that, that don't normally do uh, Star Wars fiction. Uh, Will Wheaton was one of them, uh, and, and uh, they're all stories that spin off of individual moments in the first movie, in the New Hope movie, uh, and we did it for a charity called uh, First Book, uh, which is a literary charity. Uh, and it was done as a hardcover, and it turned out to just sell and sell and sell. Uh, and I really hope we do one for Star Trek, because it's really cool. And uh, it turned out uh, it's 2020. It's the 40th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, so we did it again, and I was invited back. And so I have another story in that one. And uh, it's my first Star Wars prose story uh, in three years. Uh, after having you know, done so much uh, in Star Trek and other realms. Because uh, I've done Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica and Lion King. I even wrote a Dumbo original graphic novel. I've, I've done a lot of different other uh, sandboxes. Uh, so this is Star Wars again. That comes out, uh, I think, the second week of uh, November. Uh, and that's in hardcover, audiobook, and uh, ebook. Uh, I'm, uh, my bet, I have no way of knowing this for sure, I would bet anything that January Lavoy is going to do the reading for that uh, because she did the reading for my last story that was uh, in the previous one. Uh, and uh, I, it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I just, th that's, 
that's that's my guess at this point. And so we'll see. I never actually know who's doing the recording until they're in studio sometimes, and sometimes not even until after that. Um, but uh, I do usually give them you know, pronunciation guides and everything. Uh, this one was a little bit easier than, than the other books, um, but uh, uh, not as much Klingon in it. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then other than that, I, uh, I've, I've been doing a lot of nonfiction work. Uh, my uh, comics website, Comicron, uh, I've uh, been uh, both uh, shepherding or helping to advise the comics industry as it goes through uh, this pandemic period uh, because I, I have all this historical data about uh, you know what things uh, have, have sold over the years. Um, and that goes back to my, my experience as a business writer uh, in, this, uh, in this field. Uh, but then I'm also, I, I've spent just months uh, working on uh, estimates for what comics sold in the 1960s. Uh, and uh, you know, so I'm going to have some things that nobody's really ever been able to do before. I'm gonna have sales charts from the days when even the people who lived in that time didn't have the sales charts. So, uh, but all the facts are there. It's all there to be reconstructed. Uh, it's been a pet project of mine for, uh, you know, two decades now. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I just needed a lot of time where I wasn't going to conventions and darned <laughs> if it didn't happen. <laughs> so for our listeners, um, John, how can I find out more about you? Well, my website is farawaypress.com, which uh, I'm in the middle of redesigning right now, so that's yet another pandemic thing that I, I, I have put off until now. Uh, I, I, but uh, there I do have behind-the-scenes stories on uh, uh, you know, trivia and everything on every story up until about, uh, well, the, uh, the, for Star Trek, the, uh, the takedown novel I did. So I, I still need to do one for Prey and for, uh, for Enterprise War and Die Standing. But that's farawaypress.com. Uh, they can find me on uh, Twitter at JJM Faraway. They can find me on uh, the uh, uh, on Facebook at John Jackson Miller, and then my Comicron website is Comicron C O M I C H R O N dot com. That uh, that word also is the uh, the Twitter tag uh, and the name of the Patreon. Oh, that's brilliant! Um, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate your time um, this afternoon. And uh, we can't wait for you to come on again and, and talk more about your, your other brilliant Star Trek books. All right, thank you very much. Enjoyed being, enjoyed being here. Well, it's been great talking to John about Die Standing. And look out for our review show of Die Standing. We can't wait to, to talk about the book, especially now we've been talking to John. So thanks for listening. And as always, don't forget to turn the page for our next adventure. <laughs>